Welcome to the Rename Podcast. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks off for us at this point, but we're back and stronger than ever as per usual. Uh, we got a packed show for you tonight, so I'm going to be brief on the introduction. Uh, we're going to talk about two of the biggest news stories in television this week. We're going to talk about Top of the Lake, the Sundance original series that is streaming on Netflix and that we've all watched and that we've told you to watch in the past. Hopefully you all have. And we're going to talk to return to the Review Name Movie Club and talk about Undefeated, the 2011 uh, winner for Best Documentary. Uh, with that, I have with me this evening Chris. Hello. And Sam. Hello. And I think we should dive right into things. Sam, I want to kick it to you first, and let's talk sure. about the big Parks and Rec news this week. Sure. The big news in Parks and Rec this week is that... Uh, Rashida Jones and Rob Lowe have announced that they are leaving the show this season. I believe they're doing about a half season, I think. A little more than a half season, I think. Yeah, doing episodes, I think. How many? Twelve? Thirteen, I think they said. Thirteen. So yeah. a little bit more than half the season. Um, and I have to say, as a Parks and Rec fan, if there were two characters that were written off the show, I'd pick these two characters. Guys, what is your initial reaction hearing that these these actors who have both been very very funny on the show? What's your reaction to them deciding to leave? Chris, um, I can't say I'm surprised. Uh, I think uh, Rashida Jones's character has always been a little bit of a uh, puzzle for the writers and or trying to figure out things to do with her, trying to naturally involve her in the storylines. I mean, I always like her relationship with. Leslie and I think they have a great on-screen chemistry together, but uh, it's every season they try and find a new direction for Anne, and it never really works and it never really feels like a natural progression of the show. So as much as I like the character, um, I think it doesn't really surprise me terribly much that she's leaving. Uh, and I guess on a more recent note, whenever sitcoms trot out the these two characters aren't together but are trying to have a baby plotline, I just kind of tune out for a while because it's one of my least favorite tropes in sitcoms. I really hate it. It's a non-starter. I don't know why it keeps getting used because I can't think of an example where it has ever been done well. So um, I'm a little sad to see this is the note where they're going out on. Uh, but I, I think they're the least integral to the ensemble right now. Um, I, I think that the show will be all right without them, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to miss them. Rob Lowe, maybe a little bit more because I, I love every time Rob Lowe, uh, leans into the word literally. It's, it's always a laugh. It's always funny. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I would say, um, first off for a show that was built and it was very, uh, very clearly built around the idea of a female friendship between Leslie Nope and Ann Perkins, uh, and that was how it was pitched, and that was a lot of how it was originally delivered and what the show was kind of trying to be about. I don't know that it's ever been most successful when it's about the two of them. Um, Leslie Nope is is a fantastic character. Anne Perkins has never been quite as, as resonant a character for me. And part of that, I think, is Rashida Jones, which uh, listeners of the podcast have probably heard me rant before. Um People who read who read the site regularly have definitely heard me rant before. I don't think Rashida Jones is all that talented a comedic actress. I think she's fine as a straight woman. I think she's fine uh, filling out the cast, but I've never found her particularly funny. Um, and I think the show has always struggled to figure out exactly what to do with her. 
So if I was going to write it a single character of the show, it would be Ann Perkins. Um, I think it sucks that we'll lose the the female friendship focus that we've had in theory with Leslie Nope and Anne, but I don't know that it's ever worked as well as the show intended it to. And I feel like Leslie's uh, marriage now to Ben probably fills that Leslie personal relationship hole and is more narratively satisfying to me. As for Rob Lowe, I will never be surprised to see him leave a show. It happens all the time. Um, I think he's been great on Parks and Rec. I was finally forgiving him for leaving the West Wing because of how great he's been on it. I don't know if I'll be quite as upset to see him leave because, again, I think, Chris, like you said, Chris Traeger's had a little bit less to do than other characters, and he's a little bit more one-note than some of the other characters. But I've loved him on the show. I've loved the way that he's developed. I've loved sort of... Some of the weird directions they've taken him in, I think, have worked really well. I don't know that I would ask for him to leave the way that I'm. I really don't mind Anne leaving, and I, you know, if I was picking someone, I'd pick her. But I think there are a lot of other characters I'd be sadder to lose. That's what I would say. Sam, uh, what are you thinking on this? Um, I agree with a lot of what you guys said. Um, I think I enjoy the Leslie Anne moments a little more than you. Um, I think. I think that they have good moments together, even if it's not like the big laugh moments on the show. I think they've done a good job developing that relationship. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the Leslie Ben relationship and now, now that they're married, I feel like that's kind of taken a big bite out of that. And, you know, I think this is also, it also gives them an opportunity to, to do something interesting with these two characters together. Cause clearly they're going with the, the pregnancy plotline, which I'm not really a fan of either, Chris, but I think it also gives them an opportunity to kind of seamlessly write them out together and maybe give these characters a satisfying conclusion. So yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. And I, I think it's not clear that that wasn't the intent. You know, it, it hasn't it hasn't been specifically made clear that the two asked to leave as opposed to being sort of written out organically. So it's not clear to me that wasn't the plan all along. Yeah, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm I not could... entirely sure. I feel like the thing is Rob Lowe has been obviously doing like a bunch of other stuff between Lifetime movies and HBO movies and these are, and he's doing more TV movie stuff and I'm sure he'll, he'll hop on another series at some point. Um, and this is just kind of like what Rob Lowe does. This is Jordan said this. I mean, he, he, he goes from uh, series to series and he, um, you know, he's like Johnny Appleseed for television series. He, <laughs> you know, he he plants a few trees. People kind of love him when he's there because he's a really great actor and he's really flexed his um. He's really flexed his uh, acting or comedic chops rather with Parks and Rec, and I think he did a great job. Um, Rashida Jones, I think, definitely probably works better as the straight woman in, in what she does, and I think that kind of worked when she was working with Leslie or all the stuff that she did with. Um, Aubrey Plaza, I think that would be fine. Uh, I think I think all the stuff with Aubrey Plaza was like she basically Rashida Jones Jones's job was just to kind of be there, and she was fine at doing that. And I think they played well with each other. And uh, Rashida Jones trying to forge a relationship with April, I thought that was kind of a a nice little thing they had going the last couple of seasons. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I'm not going to be crushed to see Rashida go. Hopefully, they'll give them a nice storyline together to kind of round it out and give it a nice conclusion. 
yeah, I I think I I will miss at least the potential, even though I I don't know how often it worked. It did occasionally. I don't know how often it worked for me, but I think I'll miss at least the potential of the Leslie Ann moments and the the devoted friendship the two of them share. Um, and especially watching Leslie be like an insanely competent and amazing best friend all the time, which I thought was always well done. Um, but I also think we've gone for far enough in the series that we have plenty of other well-developed characters that can step into a Leslie's female friend role. I think they've really spent a lot of time developing the April Leslie relationship over the course of the series. And while Leslie's been sort of April's mentor, uh, I think April's come into her own to the point that maybe April can step up and take over that role for the show. Also, I don't know how long the show honestly has left. So they, you know, we might see Rob Lowe and Rashida Jones leaving halfway through the final season, in which case their absence may not be felt as harshly as if the show goes on for another, you know, two, three years. Well, yeah, I agree. I've actually, I've said before in this podcast, I'm, I'm one of, I feel like I'm one of Parks and Rec's you know, greatest champions, and I love this show so much. But I definitely feel like the best seasons of the show are behind it. And if you look at the cast, you know, Aubrey Plaza starting a movie career, Chris Pratt starting a movie career, Amy Poehler's kind of been the breakout star. Um, Nick Offerman has been a huge breakout star and is starting to get film more and more film work. And Rob Rob Lowe and Rashida Jones have both, you know, both have their own careers, you know. There's not a lot, you know, these people are going to go do something else. And I think it's going to happen soon. And even, and you Aziz Ansari too. Oh, I was so, going to say like, do you, do you feel like the show is still going just simply as a favor to Aziz Ansari? <laughs> Aziz has no, been no, getting no, no, some no. film roles recently. No, Aziz, Aziz, Aziz is getting more stuff. And I feel like they're all like this, this show, when you look at it, I feel like everybody's going to have a nice career afterward. This is not one of those things where they just do the show and don't do anything else. Yeah. I really think that there's going to be, you're going to see a lot more from a lot of these people. Um, Sam, and, and that kind of that just kind of makes me think that the show is closer is you know relatively close to being over, which is okay. I don't I don't feel like if the show went this year and finished next year, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, honestly, I'll agree. Just just to say, um, I think the show's like its greatest narrative is over. Uh, its best seasons are almost certainly behind it, but also like the stories that it's been telling are for the most part wrapped up at this point. I think what the show does best at this point, on a week-to-week basis, is just feel like a giant hug. Um, you know, I love all the characters. I love the way they play off each other, and just getting to hang out with them and see, you know, at this point, the show doesn't really have any conflicts. It's basically just every problem is going to be solved pretty quickly and everyone loves each other. Um, and I think that's great. You know, I enjoy watching it. I love the characters. But I also think it, it shows that we're closer to the end than the beginning, uh, which is fine with me because it's had a great run. And um, I hope to see it stick the landing. I'd rather it end this year or next year than go on three or four more years, lose cast members and become sort of a shadow of its former self. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's. I hope it doesn't office itself. You know, it's like Leslie leaves. Who's the new head of Parks Department? Fortunately, it's not a massive hit, so chances of it officing itself yeah, right. are big. Like, yeah, the problem. The thing is, NBC. You know, NBC could be like, "Well, we've got nothing going on. Let's keep it forever." Yeah. Hello, season four and five of Community. Yeah. 
I spoke my little brother earlier today. I was like, so do you think season five will be the last season of Community? And I was like, honestly, I thought season of four would be the last season of Community. <laughs> so, frankly, I have That's no idea. Maybe it is. Maybe it's going to last ten years. Maybe. I mean, more and more. Not to get off topic, but six seasons in a movie? Not crazy. No. Yeah, it's, it's, within, it's within reach right now. It's completely possible, especially with the 13-episode run that we currently have planned for Community Season 5, that Season 5 will do just well enough. You know, NBC renewed two comedies this year, Parks and Rec and Community. Um, it's very, very possible that Community will do just well enough to get one last six-season order. Um, and then, who knows? A show ran for six seasons, Dana Harmon could kickstart a movie, and I imagine there are plenty of us out there who would say, yes, I will donate to a Community movie just so that forevermore it can be recorded as six seasons in a movie yeah. um that's yeah. obviously off topic chris do you have any last thoughts on this um not really i'm just kind of wondering if their plan is to focus in on a more narrow a smaller cast now and give everybody a little bit more screen time or like when uh mark brandanowitz uh, left the department they're going to bring in somebody else new to kind of fill this void um, and kind of shake yeah. up the dynamics again. I don't know. It, I could see it going either way because, you know, they might not want to fall into the same problems they've had before with characters they don't really know what to do with, when especially they have so many, like, tried and true favorites that everybody really loves. But at the same time, it's a show that seems to kind of like to shake up the mix every now and then. So I think it's possible that we could see some new faces in the Parks Department. I think it's possible. I would say it's unlikely. If I had to guess, I would say... This is a budget-saving thing as much as anything. I don't think that's the reason why it's being done. Um, but I do think that NBC will look at this and say, hey, that's too fewer people we have to pay to be on this low-rated show. Uh, <laughs> let's just take advantage of that. So I would say we've got a solid core cast at this point, and, and NBC is probably going to run with it. But you never know. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Sam, any last thoughts? Not really, but I like NBC. You never know. <laughs> That's pretty much the network slogan at this point. It's like those PSAs they do, but it's just like their uh, top personalities being like, hey, we could have a hit in a show next month. You never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, yeah, I was just, as soon as someone said you never know, I was thinking the more you know. It's yeah. you never know. Like, <laughs> who knows? Like, anything could happen. Um, with that... I think we should shift on to our probably bigger news story for the week. Sam, I know you want to take this one on, so I'm going to toss it back to you and tell us about the news, the next big news story. Sure. We're actually, this is one of the few times where we can talk about a news story relatively shortly after the news actually broke. We're recording oh, this on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, by the time this gets edited, who knows? Um, sometimes the editing process takes longer than we'd like the podcast i have no idea when the podcast is going to come out i have no idea when you'll be listening to this but as we record this this happened like what six hours ago seven hours ago uh, i think it was at two so eight hours ago eight hours ago well there you go or seven, seven and a half hours ago because they did it at the bottom of the show but uh in case you haven't figured out what we're trying to talk about yet we're talking about the bbc having a half hour special announcing the next doctor number 12 and they announced as the bookies predicted Peter Capaldi will be the next Doctor, making my heart sing and probably making a lot of other fans of the thick of it and in the loop very happy. Um, 
I guess I'll get to my thoughts later. I'll go around again. Chris, what are your thoughts? You're probably how far are you are are you all caught up on Doctor Who at this point? No, I still have seven to watch. Oh God. Let's get you on that, Chris. Yeah, yeah well let's get me what are on your that. Thoughts here? You're you're still right in the middle of Matt Smith time. What are your thoughts uh, on the new doctor? I my experience my exposure to uh Peter Capraldi is limited. Uh I've only seen in the loop. I have not seen all of in the thick of it. Um I, I loved him in that. Uh, I think um he's got an incredible intensity to him, which is gonna be great for playing the doctor. Uh I'm a little surprised that they chose to go older. Uh but maybe that's just because I'm not aware of events that have happened in seven. Um for me it was more of just like from a standpoint of catering to this the fans in this era of i think almost um it, it, the the resurgence of doctor who popularity in recent years i think is is really interesting i don't remember another time uh in my life where i think doctor who had at least in america this much uh relevance and this much of a huge swell of fan following um so I was kind of expecting them to keep going with the sort of like younger, like geek chic sort of doctor. So I think it's a very interesting choice and a choice that kind of excites me to go with a little bit of an older character actor and just try to take the interpretation of the character in a bit of a different direction from what these fans who have, I think, really come into to the series through the reboot are used to. Those yeah, what I, what I found what I found interesting I my prediction for this was it was going to be another young white male and I was almost right on all three. Um, yeah. And you know, part of me wishes you know they might you know pick a, a, an actress to play the doctor, or you know have someone who's just not a white person play the doctor once. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, I'm I'm really happy with this pick because. I've seen Peter Capaldi, you know, be absolutely hilarious and he definitely has the comic chops for it. And I'm sure he, I mean, he's, he's also a good actor. I think part of the hoopla and all this is that, Oh my God, it's Malcolm Tucker. Malcolm Tucker is going to be the doctor. Well, he's not yeah. going to be the doctor. It's going to be Peter Capaldi playing the doctor. And I think it's easy to, it's easy to forget that he's, you know, an actual good actor who can, I think can really do something interesting with this role. I think it's, you know, to me, I think it's a bit more of going back to Eccleston, where you're kind of having a more serious, uh, you know, he's got some miles on him, a little bit more serious, a little bit angrier, um, and a little bit older. And I think the dynamic between the um, between the doctor and the companion is going to change a bit now, because before it was, it was often a lot of sexual tension. It was often yeah. the companion would be really into the doctor and like really wants to just jump his bones. I mean, that's what happened with Amy. That's what happened with Clara. That's what happened with, you know, Rose and tenant. That's what happened with, um, Martha river song and, and tenant and Martha and, 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 uh, tenant. So I feel like, Hey, I mean, there's like, there's definitely the chance that could happen again with Peter Capaldi. Um, but I think that relationship, the fact that he's going to be, an older man is going to change that dynamic a lot, which I think will be really interesting. And I feel like he brings like a certain intensity and a certain maybe grittiness to the role that we haven't even seen yet, even with Eccleston, who I think 
in terms of the new generation of doctors, we consider as the quote dark doctor. Um, and I, I also think that Moffat picked Capaldi now for a specific reason and that he's going to take this character in a direction where it'll make sense that he's, he's not a, you know, a 28 year old, you know, good looking guy. Right. He's a little bit older. He's got some wrinkles and some gray hair. I mean, I'm I'm really I'm really fascinated at this choice. I didn't think they'd do it because I thought there would be a certain marketability because there is a very large young female fan base to Doctor Who. Exactly. Um, yeah, and it's it's all about that that geek chic sort of bow ties are cool uh, sort of vibe to the show. Like it's 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 very much like a geek power show. I think it's it's sort of this whole like um, sort of reclaiming of. Uh, like science fiction and genre interests as something that's more mainstream, more cool. So that like geek hipster cheekness sort of thing that's sweeping the youth today. Uh, and I think Dr. Who is very much at the forefront of that. I I've got to agree in terms of, I didn't expect Capaldi. <clears throat> in fact, like when I saw the, that the bookies were favoring him and when I saw a lot of people saying, oh, it's going to be him, I figured, okay, he's the popular red herring like we get every single time a doctor is right. announced. Right. He's the guy who sounds great, everyone would like him, and it's not him, it's some unknown guy. So I was really surprised that it was him. Um, my, my expectation was, yeah, we would go with another young, geeky type. Um, I couldn't be happier with Capaldi as the choice for a couple reasons. Um, the first one being... Moffat has said he considered Capaldi last time uh, as one of the options, and I think he said the time wasn't right then and the time is right now. I think Stephen Moffat has, is a classic Doctor Who fan. You know, He's been a fan since he was a child, um, and part of what he's been trying to do is bring Doctor Who back and bring the love of Doctor Who back. And I think, like Chris said, this is the show's at the height of its popularity now um, that it's been you know, in probably 30 years at least. Um, Maybe even longer than that, because I don't know how popular well, it's, it was it's even in the, the early most, 80s. It's the most popular it is in America, probably ever. Well, in America ever, but I mean, period ever. I think, like, it was popular in Britain earlier in its run, but in the, I, I think by the time, even in the early 80s, I think, what, 80... Somewhere in the early 80s was when uh, Colin Baker took over and the show, and he was not beloved. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> no one likes Colin Baker. Everyone talks about, like, man, it's so hard to pick who your favorite doctor is. All I know is it's not Colin Baker. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anyone who likes Baker best. Um, but well, he's he's the doctor who like he woke up from regeneration and like tried molesting his uh, his companion, right? He well, like, he tried he to murder like, her, I think. Yeah. Oh, murder her. Okay. Yeah, he yeah, was well, the doctor fun. who came back and had like uh, regeneration PTSD. Um, he's also yeah, the doctor. That, I don't think that I don't think that worked too well. He's also the doctor that wore like the multicolored costume that makes him look like he's like completely insane. Um, I think he had a lot of question marks. Well, isn't he completely insane, Jordan? Yeah, but in a more fun way. <laughs> um, but I think Moffat, as a as a fan of classic Who, you know, the the young romance, uh, like everyone wanting to have sex with the Doctor thing, is very new to Doctor Who. Um, and I think I think that Capaldi is taking the show in a more classic direction, and it doesn't surprise me at all that Moffat wants to go someone older, someone who can who can do the more classic Doctor Who stories. And that the show is as popular as it is right now, I think he's going to have a lot of people follow him in that. I think, I think he's going to have a chance to bring back not just Doctor Who, period, but his vision of Doctor Who and the, the classic version of Doctor Who. 
As for Capaldi himself, I think, um, obviously, the thick of it in the loop, amazing. He's hysterical. He has the comedic chops. I also think um, he, he played a role in the only season of Torchwood I've seen, uh, Children of Earth, and it was an incredible dramatic performance from him. So I've seen him able to do both the drama and the comedy. I think I think he's actually, I mean, honestly, now that he's been announced and he's not just a red herring, the more I think about it, the more I think he may be the perfect choice. Well, Capaldi, he was also, you know, he's talked about how Capaldi is such a big fan himself. And I think you can really see that come through. He's been on, like you said, he was on Torchwood. And he was also in Fires of Pompeii, the episode that also had Karen Gillan as a guest role. So they're picking all their big parts out of that episode, apparently. <laughs> um, I really like that he, he feels kind of a part of this world already. I really believe, you know, he's good friends with Craig Ferguson, who, you know, obviously is like the a huge uh, Doctor Who fan on television. That's not Chris Hardwick. Um, huh. I, ju- I just feel like he belongs in this universe. Like, it's not just that he's he happens to be someone who seems like he would be a great doctor, but he also happens to be a, a true huge fan of the show. Um, and I think that might work to his advantage. I was watching the interview um, with him af- after he got picked on the BBC special, and he said... You know, what he did to prepare for auditioning was he read old Doctor Who scripts. And it was interesting that he he went out of his way to pick old Doctor Who scripts instead of new Doctor stuff. And I feel like that kind of goes to what you were saying, Jordan. You know, he he knows Doctor Who from growing up on it. And I think him and Moffat might be able to share a certain wavelength, having that similar background, I think could produce some really interesting stuff going forward. I also think the best thing to do whenever you pick a new doctor is to try to go like the opposite direction of the last doctor. You know, we're all, <clears throat> I think the standard doctor who fandom thing, and I know it's true for me is the first thing you think is the, the next guy's not going to be nearly as good as the current guy. I love the current guy. Um, and then if you see someone try to, to ape what the current guy's doing, you're going to roll your eyes and not get on board quite as quickly. So I think knowing that Peter Capaldi is going to take the character in a completely different direction, I would assume uh, or, you know, as different a direction as you can take the Doctor is exciting to me because I love Matt Smith. Uh, I'm on record, I think, on the podcast and elsewhere as I've seen uh, 9, 10, 11. I've seen one and I'm watching through the second Doctor right now trying to make my knowledge more complete. But of the Doctors I've seen, Matt Smith is my favorite. Um, so it would be tough to replace him. And I don't want to see someone try to do the Matt Smith thing. So I think Capaldi is a perfect choice in that he's going to do something different with it. He's going to take it in another direction, and he's going to be easier to jump on board with as a new, different doctor. Well, that you bring up kind of an interesting point that I wanted to get to. Um, I remember Neil Gaiman posted on his either his twum, Tumblr or his blog. I think you know he was hearing a lot about who will be the new doctor and reading about all these you know fan suggestions about different types of people who are going to be the doctor, and he said that. Part of the fun of the doctor or seeing the new doctor for him is he sees the actor that's going to play it. And he's, and he goes, who the hell is that? This guy is never going to do it. He sucks. I want the old doctor. But with this time, you know, we get, we get a celebrity. We have an established actor who we all know. And this time we're not going because my reaction when I first started watching Smith was, you know, who is this guy replacing David Tennant? He, there's no way he could be as good as David Tennant. And then, you know, he proves you wrong and you're, it's kind of a great surprise. 
But with here, we know who Capaldi is. And when we see him and we talk about him, we're thinking about how good it's going to be. And we know he's not going to be Matt Smith, but we also think he can be a really, really good doctor. Do you think there's something lost there? Do you think it was a mistake to go with an established actor that people really know? I, I, oh, if I could jump in here for a second, I, I don't think so at all, because like, I think part of the greatness of Doctor Who is that uh, because it's a, there is no essential time limit on the show, you can always get that back again. I kind of think it's interesting to have a different sort of um, anticipation this time around, where it's like this is a choice that we all kind of wanted to see. Like this is the the one when we all heard about, we were all a little excited about, and I think it's going to be interesting. I, I, I'm interested in going into this with expectations in having somebody who we're all kind of on board with, like, yeah, I want to see this guy, this guy's take on the doctor. I think that's an exciting thing now. And I think that, well, I agree with you that that is part of the fun with the new doctor is learning to love this guy you initially hate because he's not the guy that came before. We can get that next time. We can get that the time after that. It's not, this isn't the, he's not going to be the last doctor. Like we're going to have that opportunity again. I agree with that. I would also say, um, what was I? Oh, I was going to say, I think what we we've had a lot of unknowns. I think it's the standard to, to cast someone who's basically unknown as the Doctor, and we all expected that. You know, I thought it can't be Peter Capaldi. I know who he is, or you know, another popular choice, Rupert Grint. Like, it's not going to be Rupert Grint. Like, everybody knows that guy. They're going to pick an unknown. So I feel like on the one hand, that's a surprise. Like picking picking someone who's already established is kind of a surprise. I also think knowing that Moffat's taking the show in a different direction now, going to play with the old Doctor and going to play with some classic uh, established Doctor Who ideas, I think it's smart for him to take the show that's very popular now, take someone who a lot of people who watch the show are going to know, and throw him at the front of it. If you're going to change some basic things about the way the show structures is structured and the way the show operates, I think the smartest thing to do is say, hey, look at this guy you like, Get excited about him, and then maybe don't pay attention to the fact that some other things you like about the current show might not be there in his iteration. Yeah. Huh. I th- I so you're saying... <laughs> so Stephen Moffat's like, well, I could suck now, and people will be like, it's Capaldi's fault. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying yeah, more he's... like, you're not. You're probably not going to get River Song. You're probably not going to yeah. get Jenna Coleman being in love with Peter Capaldi. You're probably going to get some different dynamics in the companion. You're going to get fangirls being upset, like, I can't be in love with the Doctor anymore. You're going to get uh, a lot of shippers being upset that the Doctor's not going to be as easily, uh, as easy a romantic figure to play around with. Though I don't see at all why Capaldi couldn't be romantic in his own way. Um, I think, like, the show's going to change some of its dynamics. And if you're going to do something like that, it's I think it's much smarter to go with an established guy. Um and Moffat is playing with the show both in terms of what's going to be the best creatively and in terms of what's going to not torpedo his now very popular show. Well, I, I think... Sorry, go ahead, Jordan. Oh, I was going to say, and I think that this is the decision to make in that regard. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, I was going to just say, I think I think we we're all pretty much in agreement that this is an exciting choice um, yeah. for the series and... You know, not that we wouldn't, not that we wouldn't watch anyway, but now the anticipation is so much greater. And I know it won't work because it's not the right episode, but part of me just really wants to see Peter Capaldi's doctor face off against 
um, what's his face from the last episode? John Hurt. Yeah, John Hurt's uh, quasi doctor guy. Well, you never know. I mean, we're going to be introduced to John Hurt's. Uh, we, I think we all assume iteration from the time war between eight and nine or whatever he, John Hurt ends up playing. Um, this is a brand new character for the series. So it, while he's going to be introduced in the 50th anniversary, you never know. Maybe he'll be around for a little while. I mean, not as a regular, but he could pop up as an occasional <laughs> ally or adversary. His new companion. Traveling through time. Yeah. Solving crimes. His new companion is, like, it's the Doctor and the Doctor and General Louise Coleman. Yeah. And <laughs> K-9. Yeah, and K-9. I would watch I would watch Peter Capaldi's Doctor with just K9. Yeah, I would watch that show, absolutely. I think they'd have good, you know, Peter Capaldi would be angry and frustrated at K9 and K9 would be obedient. I really hope that uh that we get at least one episode with Peter Capaldi dealing with Strax because imagine how angry Peter Capaldi is going to be dealing with Strax. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of angry doctor, angry humorous doctor and angry Hold on to your butt, Doctor. I, I think Capaldi could really pull that off well. Yeah, I think he's going to be able to pull the the turning on a dime off very well. And one of my favorite things about the Doctor as a character is he goes immediately from this like childish, uh, you know, odd by everything kid who's having a lot of fun with everything to this ancient, you know, god who is all powerful and can stop anything and is angry at anyone who stands in his way. And I think. Any great performance from the Doctor is going to have to be able to take those two things and combine them in an interesting way and, and switch between them at the flick of a switch. And I think Capaldi is someone who could do that. Are there any last thoughts before we move on? Because we have gone a while on this. Yeah, I think we're uh, about ready for to move on. Daniel? I think so, too. I can't wait until when is the Christmas special? Christmas special. Oh, wait. Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> um, and I, I, I was mean, looking today because I'm, I was so excited. I was trying to figure this out. I looked today. Well, and is it looks the Christmas like, special on Christmas? Yeah, it airs on Christmas. On Christmas Day? Yes. Most Christmas specials, they usually wait. It's like usually just holiday season. In America, Christmas specials are like two weeks before Christmas. In Britain, they're like, fuck it. Have it on the day. We don't yeah. care. They're super into their Christmas Day. Yeah, so it will air on Christmas Day. The reports I was reading today, it looks like the show will not come back after that until August of 2014. So we'll have a wait before oh, we get to Capaldi. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh. We'll have, we'll Jordan, have I can't wait. a good eight Man, months before we get an actual episode with Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Um, oh. But we will clearly... Really? They're not... About, oh, my God. Yeah, it's going to be a while, Sam. <laughs> Recover from that. So, so basically you're saying in the, next, lost Sam in the, the next full year, Jordan, in the next year, we're going to have two episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah, from between now and, you know, August 4th, 2014, we will probably only have two episodes of Doctor Who. Oh, my God. I need you, I need you to breathe for a minute, Sam. Uh, listeners, I will say, we will talk about Doctor Who when the 15th anniversary comes around in November because it's the 50th anniversary and we're all going to be watching and excited about it. We will almost certainly talk about it again in December when the Christmas special airs and when we see uh, the final episode with Matt Smith's Doctor. Uh, maybe not in December itself because we're going to be talking about a lot of year-end stuff at the time, 
but I can guarantee you very soon after that episode airs, we'll be talking about that as well. So for now, we're all excited about Peter Capaldi. It's going to be a while before we see him, but we're all excited about it. And why don't we move on uh, to talk about Top of the Lake? We told you all as listeners uh, a couple weeks back that we were going to be talking about this on the podcast. If you have not watched Top of the Lake, don't worry. We are going to talk about it without spoilers for, uh, you know, a little while, and then we'll shift into spoilers. And I'll make very clear when we're going into spoiler territory, as I always do. So for now, you're fine. Um, why don't we start off our conversation with top uh, of Top of the Lake with you, Chris, and what did you think generally about the show? Why don't we just start with general thoughts? Uh, general thoughts? Uh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a very compelling mystery. It was It really captured me pretty much in the first 10, 15 minutes, it kind of had me. I, I loved the performances. The, the entire cast is phenomenal, uh, especially uh, Peter Mullen, I thought was absolutely incredible. Um, it was a little predictable at times, I thought, but I'm always willing to forgive predictability in a uh, in a good noir story. Like if it's a good mystery, a good noir that really is very atmospheric and just gives me some great characters that I really enjoy following, I'm fine if it's not the most shocking or twist-worthy story that I've ever seen. Um, I thought the visuals were absolutely phenomenal. The setting is incredible like some of some of the the shots the establishing shots like when they're going over the mountains and showing you the landscape of what um the expanse of paradise is just it's gorgeous it is a gorgeous show um so yeah i think there's a lot to like there i think if you are a fan of um the genre you you always yourself to check this out because it's on netflix it's really well done um yeah i i i really enjoyed watching it so um yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Cool. Sam, initial thoughts? <clears throat> um, this is a show, I think, it took me about two episodes, two or three episodes to really get into it for me. Um, I agree with Chris. I think uh, sometimes it was trying to, it, when it was trying to be twisty, it wasn't really as twisty as I think it thought it was being. Um, I completely agree that... Um, Peter Mullen was absolutely fantastic as Matt, an absolute evil scum, white trash, that whole family. Um, but I thought, you know, Elizabeth Moss, she was the star of the show, and she's done, this was absolutely some of her best work, I think, including her, you know, already awesome work on Mad Men. Uh, she was really put through the ringer, I think, with this uh, this series, and, you know, she delivered the good. She was really, really great. She had to do the accent. And I think it, it hardly ever slipped. Um, I guess she was she's playing someone who's from New Zealand but has lived in England and has Australia. moved back. Or, oh, yeah, right, Australia. Australia. So she's lived in New Zealand, lived in Australia, and has come back. Um, I think she did a great job. But then again, I'm not from New Zealand and I'm not Australian, so I couldn't tell you how good or bad it is. But I can definitely tell you it was never uh, distracting at all, other than maybe the first episode where I'm going, oh, Elizabeth Moss has an accent. Um why is Peggy Olsen talking like that? Yeah, Peggy, I don't understand. It's why is it not the '60s? Um, I don't understand how <laughs> yeah, TV this works. Yeah, it seems like it's modern day. Why are you <laughs> not being, you know? Well, I, I can't say why you're not being oppressed, but <laughs> yeah, Peggy, um, Don's gonna be so pissed if you don't have a new Heinz slogan by the time you get back from solving this murder. Something I, I really liked, you know, in in 
popular culture today, New Zealand is pretty much exclusively associated with Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings. And everybody knows about like the great beauty of New Zealand and kind of that was put on display in the Lord of the Rings series. But what I really liked is that Jane Campion, you know, she maintained the beauty of the place. I mean, a lot of the show is literally about, about the land that, you know, some people are fighting over. What I really liked is that she showed that it isn't really paradise. I mean, there is, there is a dark underbelly. There is some serious white trash going on in here. And there is, there are, you know, uh, class issues, race issues going on. The police is not as good as it could be in other places. Let's say I won't, I don't want to spoil and I don't want to spoil too much about the show. Um, yeah, we'll get but, to spoilers in a bit, but for now. But, but there was a great um, juxtaposition between the beauty of of the location and kind of all and all of the ugliness going on because there is so much ugliness that goes on on this show. And um, I mean, I think we can delve more deeply into that when we get into spoilers. But I think, just speaking generally, I think if you give it a couple of episodes and you kind of get your feet wet, no, you know. No pun intended, given what happens in the show. Um, I think this is a really, really engrossing series, and I'm curious if they're going to do another one. I mean, I won't say what happens at the end again, but she's a detective, let's say. Um, Yeah, let's say it's possible. Uh, I would characterize it as unlikely since it was pitched as a miniseries and Jane Campion is, you know, a filmmaker by trade, but it's possible. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, there's no reason they can't, you know, wait two years and do another one um, if they wanted to. That said, I have, I have no clue what the, the plans for this show are. Um, but as, but on its own, I think it serves as a really, really interesting mystery. And I think it, 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 it kind of, it's, it has noir elements. At times it's a, a thriller. And I think Elizabeth Moss is really, really excellent. And definitely worth your seven episodes of viewing. There's really no reason not to watch it. It's on, it's on uh, Netflix. Watch instantly. There are only seven episodes. It's not a huge time commitment as far as television goes, and you get a good complete story. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll jump in with my general thoughts at this point and say I loved it right off the bat. It didn't take me two or three episodes. In fact, like pretty much immediately, I uh, my jaw dropped with how a how beautiful the show is but also i think with its very specific uh not just sense of place but sense of tone i think i think the show steals a lot from and i actually i want to talk about this in just a minute Uh, i think it steals a lot from various other shows uh twin peaks veronica mars there are a lot of shows that i think influence top of the lake in some way or another but even from the beginning knowing that these shows were sort of in its wheelhouse and sort of what it was playing with I think it was completely its own thing. Um, I I think even before you know what's going on, you know there's a lot to the show. And even while uh, while some of the twists that we will talk about in a bit weren't necessarily effective as twists for me, they were all very narratively effective. Um, I think they made sense within the world. I think the story developed very, very coherently. And I think throughout it was it was a beautiful, well-acted, um, really engrossing show. And it's at seven hours. I mean, as soon as I finished the first one, I, I actually wasn't able to. I was running off to uh, do a double feature in Los Angeles at the time. But um, as soon as I finished that episode, I was like, I could watch the rest of it right now. Um, 
And I did. I marathoned the rest of the series, I think, over two days. And Chris, you watched it all today, right? Yeah, yeah. I had gotten very behind on my viewing. So I, uh, starting as soon as I woke up this morning, basically just tried to power through the whole thing to get it done in time for this podcast. And it really didn't feel like a huge commitment because I was just enjoying it so much. By the time I got into it, it's it became all I wanted to do for the day. So it was fine. Yeah, it's this is a really easy to show to marathon, a really easy show to marathon through. Um, yeah. And I think completely engrossing. It's beautiful. It's well acted. It's one of the best things I've seen on TV this year, I would say. Um, why don't we Why don't we pivot before we go into spoilers? Why don't we pivot and talk a little bit about the show's influences? Sam, I know you were texting me as you were watching it saying, like, this is Veronica Mars. This is Veronica Mars. This is Veronica Mars. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you think the show took from Veronica Mars? Um, we'll talk about Twin Peaks and some other things as well. But why don't we start there? Um, I don't think I could talk about what it took from Veronica Mars because I think it took a lot of distinct plot points right okay. out of Veronica Mars. <laughs> yeah, I, I see that. We'll talk about Veronica Mars in, in a minute. Um, I'll I'll just say Twin Peaks, obviously, um, the idea, the basic premise of the show involves uh, a young girl in trouble. Um, while in Twin Peaks, there's a corpse at the beginning of the series washing up on the shores of the lake. What washes up on the shores of the lake very early on on top of the lake is very different um, in that it's not a dead body. But I think the show takes its tone, takes its small town setting, takes a lot of its uh, explorations of the CD underbelly of these small communities from Twin Peaks. Um, if I were looking at one show that I think Top of the Lake is very much influenced by, it's Twin Peaks for me. Um, and as I've said in the podcast before, and as you both well know, that's my kryptonite. You tell me a show is Twin Peaks-esque, I will watch that show. I've watched terrible, terrible television programs for longer than I would care to admit huh. because they were cl claimed to be Twin Peaks-esque by a reviewer I listened to. Huh. Happy um, Town? Happy Town was one of them. Happy I Town was Twin Peaks-esque, Peaks but it was bad. It yeah, was it was, it was Twin Peaks-esque. That was accurate. It was bad. Desperate Housewives, another one called Twin Peaks-esque. It was not Twin Peaks-esque, and I watched it for... I think over a season before I was like, yeah, this isn't going to go anywhere that I care about. Um, hey, hey, Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Yeah. Hemlock Grove is Twin Peaks-esque. It is don't the you... worst show I've ever seen, but <laughs> it is Twin Peaks-esque. Don't you say that to me. And even if you say it to me, you've said previously in this podcast enough terrible things about Hemlock Grove to keep me away. Um, Have I? Have I, Jordan? It's very Twin Peaks-esque. Okay, stop. Stop saying that. Cause you, <laughs> she's my kryptonite. I, I will literally go watch Hemlock Grove and I will hate you for it. I know. Um, but Top of the Lake manages to be Twin Peaks-esque, completely its own thing, and excellent television all at the same time. Um, so while I would say it is heavily influenced by the series, I would say if you like Twin Peaks, you'll, you will probably like Top of the Lake. If you didn't, you would still have a really decent shot of liking Top of the Lake, I'd say. Um, Chris, well, any thoughts on the influences of the show, um, how they did or did not influence it for you? Um... I generally do like that kind of vibe, that small town sort of like like the Twin Peaks esqueness. I, I was not anywhere nearly as big of a Twin Peaks fan as you were, but I still really like that those same kind of general themes and that same kind of atmosphere that Twin Peaks developed. And I think for to an extent, that's the reason that I'm still watching The Killing, whereas I think pretty much everybody has given up on that show. Is yeah, that I, I still kind of like that time ago? That was another yeah, one I, because it was Twin Peaks esque, and then at the end of season yeah. one, like nope. <laughs> Who I, killed Laura Palmer? I mean, Rosie, who? Larson. Who is it? <laughs> Rosie Larson? Larson? I literally uh, almost said Rosie Palmer. <laughs> Rosie Palmer. Um, 
Yeah, I but yeah, I, I think there are definitely those comparisons you can draw there. Um, but I think part of that is just narratively for the genre. I think these types of stories work a little bit better in the era we're in now where if it was in a more urban setting and you were in a police department that had more resources it could call upon, uh, it's sort of, I don't know that the story could have been as engaging or could have been um, as interesting if you had like a whole giant police department with lots of resources and a forensics lab and yada, yada, and whatever, whatever. I I think these types of stories are more interesting in the small town setting where everybody kind of knows each other, where everybody has secrets uh, and when there there are all this shared history that plays very heavily into the events that are going on in the series. So I'm not sure that it's exactly this. They were trying to they were being they're wearing the influence of specific shows on their sleeves so much as just I think that it's just kind of more narratively appealing to set these shows in these more remote locations, in these smaller, more contained environments. Um, Sam, I think I cut you off when I was jumping to Chris. Did you have something you wanted to throw in? Well, I wanted to talk about the Twin Peaks comparison. And I feel like this show, I think what it takes most from Twin Peaks is, is that sense of the small town community and like these kind of quirky characters that exist within this world and how they all relate to each other. Um, but I think where it really differs is in that its tone is, I think, very different. I think I think a way to describe how I felt watching the two. Watching Twin Peaks was like watching a movie shot on film and Top of the Lake is like watching a movie shot on digital. There is like a certain uh, uh, gritty real worldness that came with Top of the Lake that wasn't there with uh, Twin Peaks. I felt Twin Peaks was much more dreamlike. It was almost like everything seemed very, very surreal. And while they both have like kind of quirky characters, I can see, you know, someone in top of the lake existing more easily than someone, than some of the characters existing in, you know, twin peaks. I mean, obviously that's what you're going to get when you have, when you compare David Lynch to Jane Campion. But yeah, um, your, your film digital comparison is interesting. Um, I don't know if the top of the lake didn't feel dreamlike to me. I would say, Twin Peaks is very surreal. Uh, Top of the Lake is very ethereal. Uh, in that, like, a lot of Top of the Lake felt dreamlike to me, but it felt it felt more like a meditation on loss and on absences, whereas Twin Peaks feels more like a meditation on like metaphysics. Yeah, I mean, I got the thing is, I felt like everything in Twin Peaks could have been a dream sequence, and often there were dream sequences. And they didn't feel completely out of place on that show. I felt like, I felt like Top of the Lake. It felt much more grounded in reality to me. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I mean, like, if there had been a backwards talking talking midget on Top of the Lake, I think it would have taken me out of it a little bit. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's just yeah, like not the show cool. it's trying to be, which is fine. I mean, they're different shows and they're going for different things. But in terms yeah. of things that it did take from Twin Peaks, um, I think. I think that there are so many characters and they all know so much about each other. I think that kind of inclusiveness is something that a lot of shows have taken from Twin Peaks. And I think that's partly partly because 
you know, of Twin Peaks success and what it did really well, but partly because from a narrative standpoint, um, you know, it's very economic to be out, you know, to live in a small town. Cause if these people were in, you know, a big city, they couldn't be like, Oh yeah, Jim will help you. He's like, you know, if it, if this happened in you know New York city, it, it, it wouldn't feel right where everybody knows everybody. Um, it felt so intimate. And a lot of the story, a lot of the plot points in the story had to do with, you know, deals made between local people and they're kind of just being like a general understanding of certain rules that just kind of go down in this area that wouldn't really exactly happen in a bigger town. And a lot of the problems you, you see in um, a lot of the dynamic between law enforcement and criminal element on the show also makes it much easier in a small town than say if the NYPD was going after a group of white trash thugs, then say the local police department in this small town going after a bunch of white trash thugs. It changes the dynamic a lot. And I think it worked well for Twin Peaks and I think it worked well for Top of the Lake. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, are there any more things we want to talk about generally with the show before we move into more specific territory and more spoilers? Uh, Chris? Oh boy, I can't wait to go spoilery. No, I'm I'm good. We can let's. All right, let's let's do it. So, stuff. if you have not seen Top of the Lake, now is the time to skip uh, five ten minutes ahead in the show. We're going to talk about uh, Undefeated. We're going to return to the movie club and discuss Undefeated and talk about the next selection for the movie club. So, stick around, skip a little bit ahead. Now it's time uh, for us to get into spoiler territory. Sam, I know you're most excited. I'm going to kick it to you. What do you got for us, spoiler wise? Okay, so. This is me like this is me just having fun with this is basically me the same fun I have with Allison Hannigan being secretly a brainwashed willow on how I met your mother. Yes, your your favorite crackpot theory for me personally and I think a lot of uh, our readers and or listeners. I, I'm telling um, you that last season of How I Met Your Mother, I started believing that theory. Chris, as, a, as the resident writer of How I Met uh, reviewer of How I Met Your Mother on our site, I feel like you'd have to to survive. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the only thing. I'm just waiting for Xander to show up and take her back home. Like that's the only <laughs> thing still, keeping me going right now. We still have the wedding, you know. A lot could yep. happen. Just saying. Maybe Xander's the bride. Yeah. Xander's oh the mother. God. Xander's the mother. Even though, even though we've even already, though we've already seen the mother. Seen the mother. Yeah, but it was I just. Did you guys recognize it was Nicholas Brendan in a wig? Yeah. Yeah, good point. <laughs> she had a full beard. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize, but she did have a full beard. Yeah. All right, Sam. <laughs> anyway, so but I theory. love talking about the mother's full beard. Um, but my new crackpot theory is that Jane Campion, when she's not making like independent movies, she just sits at home and watches Veronica Mars and is like, I'm going to jack this stuff, make it a little bit darker, put it in New Zealand, <laughs> call it Top of the Lake. Because... <laughs> One of them is a show about a teenage girl who is raped by multiple men who then grows up and deals with this by becoming a detective. When she investigates further, she finds out her current boyfriend may or may not be her brother, her biological brother, also kind of complicating matters. And then, and then we find out at the end that the guy we trusted all along Turns out to be molesting a bunch of kids under his program that he runs. And our detective finds this out by looking at a picture on the wall and kind of kind of getting that zoom in moment where, oh, my God, he's raping all these kids. 
<laughs> but all these things happen exactly on Veronica Mars and top of the lake. Yeah, they're <laughs> you're absolutely right. True. When you lay it all out like that, back to back to back, I, I noticed it a lot more than I was watching through it the first time. I mean, when I was watching the end, the last scene at the end, like the twist at the end was like zero surprise because when I first saw the pictures of the kids on the wall, I'm like, oh, this is like when they have the pictures of the Little League team on Veronica Mars. And then she looks at the pictures, the camera zooms in on her face, and she goes, oh, my God, all these kids are getting raped by this guy. And then and then Robin goes, oh, my God, all these kids are getting raped by this guy. And she, like, kind of rekindles her romance with her uh, former high school boyfriend, who she went to prom with. And also, the rape on Veronica Mars also happens post-prom. Could, yep. could he have been one of okay, the ones that raped her? Maybe. And then, and then they find. Then there's like ambiguity about whether they're brother and sister. It's all there, baby. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, I I agree with Chris. Like, it didn't. A few things here and there. I was like, that's a little Veronica Mars. But like the idea that that it was ripping this much off from Veronica Mars didn't really occur to me, and never never threw me off. Uh, when I was watching the show. But now that you're like talking about it, yeah, there's a lot there. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think there is. There's, I, I think that, just sits at home and watches Party Down and and Veronica Mars. Yeah, it's it, there, there are a lot of similarities. I can't deny it. But I, I think I think it's done well enough and done through a different tone that it doesn't it's not readily apparent when you're watching it i mean I, yeah obviously you know it's sam but like me and jordan like i said it wasn't as strong a factor in our minds when we were watching it so i think there's i think there's enough there that it's not gonna throw you out of it when you're watching it unless you listen to this podcast now and that before you see it and this, that's all you're looking for yeah i mean if you're looking for it it is there um totally. but, i mean i wasn't I, I wasn't necessarily looking for it it's just like by the end of the thing i noticed like huh there are a lot of things that happened on both of these shows. But, you know, I mean, at the same time, I, I do all the I notice all this stuff and I think it's just kind of like a fun coincidence. Obviously, I don't think Jane Campion was sitting yeah. up late like me watching Veronica Mars going like, yeah, let's do this shit. Um, <laughs> you know, Top of the Lake is its own show. And I think it does much more ambitious thing, things visually that Veronica Mars can't really touch. Um you know, they both have noir elements, but Veronica Mars was doing it on a WB slash UPN or whatever budget. Um, and, you know, Jane Campion as a visual artist, you know, Rob Thomas is a great, great writer, but he isn't Jane Campion. I mean, we're dealing with two very, very different people here. And, you know, Top of the Lake is very much his own show. And Elizabeth Moss isn't just doing Veronica Mars. She makes it her own character, even though they have both been through some really fucked up trauma that I think, I think if Veronica and Robin kind of sat down, they can kind of become BFFs and go like, I know how you feel. And, you know, Veronica's like, my mom's gone. And Robin's like, both of my parents are gone. And then they can be sad together. (laughs) Sam, um, stop writing your fanfic on the podcast. We've talked about this. Yeah, yeah. If you could just like, it's fine to write your here. fanfic, but come on, man. Just wait till we're done. Don't tell me you wouldn't want to see a Robin Veronica Mars crossover. 
You kind of want to see it, don't you? I kind of. You're not answering. I would, I would watch that. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> that is a thing, thing I would watch. I also, I think we've all said it at this point, and it's getting a little ridiculous, but I'll say again. Yeah, there are similarities. This is its own thing. Um, it, it doesn't detract from my, like, even, like, having it all pointed out like that, laid out beat by beat by beat, it doesn't detract in retrospect from my enjoyment of it. it it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm a big believer that, like, a lot of the a lot like there's so many variations of the same kinds of stories over and over and over again what really keeps them fresh is the details and i think there were enough differences in the details and enough differences in the themes that were being explored and the tone that was um achieved in top of the lake that even looking at all these things spotting out all these similarities and being able to like say these broad statements and not know which show you're talking about I still enjoy it. Like, I, it still works for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, there's a lot more diff- these shows have dissimilar than they do have similar. Um, yeah. Actually, one thing I want, I really wanted to talk about with you guys is that I don't think we've touched upon yet is um, a, a big part of the show. It's about, you know, the small town, obviously, and Elizabeth Moss character, Robin, is investigating the disappearance of this um, young pregnant girl. and perhaps some murders in connection with that and you know who impregnated the girl but while this is while all this is happening is uh, while while all of this is happening there's kind of this new community of women that kind of sprouts up on this piece of land this contentious piece of land and we meet Holly Hunter's character and she plays uh, uh, GJ and uh, yeah. she's kind yeah. of she's kind of like She's kind of this weird spiritual person who sometimes I felt like she's like kind of like a cult leader, but she isn't really because she doesn't she's not that interested in leading these people. She's just kind of a wise old woman. Sometimes she reminded me of Yoda. I'm curious what you guys thought of her character, because she was kind of the most out there character, I think, on the show, even compared to the uber white trash criminal element we had going on. She was kind of she was kind of nationless. I think the show implied that she was from Switzerland. Um, you don't really know anything about her. She's kind of a mystery and she kind of just sits in her chair and smokes her cigarette and spouts kind of wisdom, almost like a Yoda type figure. I want to know what you guys thought of her character. Do you think she was too fantastical? Do you think she was not fantastical enough? Um, personally, I thought she was a fantastic character that didn't get enough to do. Um, she, and that, I think that might've contributed to her being too fantastical. I just thought like, I waited and waited for more for GJ. Um, I felt like she, like she ended up being this character that sort of, uh, comes out of nowhere and states, you know, the basic lesson of whatever conflict is going on. And I liked that about her, and I was okay, okay accepting that, but I, I thought there was more to her, and I kept waiting for Paradise. Paradise tied in a, in a lot of ways that I think uh, I think that aspect of the show worked incredibly well, actually. But GJ herself, I always waited for a little bit more. Even to that last scene of hers, um, when she's walking away from the camp and she's going back, uh, going off to Iceland to like decamp or whatever, and just as she puts it, get away from these crazy bitches for a while. Um, even in that last scene, I kept waiting for there to be a line or 
a conversation or some sort of acknowledgement that there was more there um, that the show had in its back pocket and wasn't necessarily dealing with. Um, and I think at the end of the day, she felt a little underdeveloped, though Holly Hunter is excellent in the role. And every time GJ speaks, everyone, you know, everyone shuts up and I wanted to listen even more closely. So I think she was fascinating, and compelling, but maybe maybe there was a little bit more I could have I could have dealt with there. Um, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, I, I almost thought like the whole encampment at Paradise um, was felt a little underdeveloped to me. And at, at times almost a little bit strange in that it it seemed to take on more of a significance in the community than it really seemed like it would have. I mean, you had these big like sort of town meetings or um vigils happening at this place that's kind of relatively new and relatively sort of like out there just like a whole bunch of weirdos just hanging out in a field um but it sort of became like a whenever we need to bring like a whole bunch of people together it's either going to be at that one bar or it's going to be paradise um which it, it just seemed a little odd to me that um it started to take on that kind of significance of the show and at times it was almost like i, I don't know that um they were like it was the, a lot of the moments where we returned to it seemed to almost be played for a little bit more comedy um than anything else um but i don't know i think the whole paradise scenario setting itself was just a little underdeveloped not just gj i think all of it like the entire encampment well i think i think paradise um works thematically more than it does as uh as a plot mechanism I think that yeah, I'll agree. I'll agree with that. But at the, at the same time, it's after a while, it almost it, it it becomes a little bit obvious that that's what they're doing because after a little while, it becomes more and more apparent that the whole land dispute has very little to do with what's actually going on. And so, the importance of that those scenes and that storyline becomes more thematic than actually narrative. And so, after a while, it becomes a little bit obvious that they don't have a narrative reason to return there well but if you think about top of the lake as a show about um these and i think the main characters for the most part are these wounded women uh in a world where that is run by men uh being oppressed and trying to fight against that oppression um paradise becomes more and more important in the way that they interact with that and the way that these characters develop in the way that they view the world in the way that the people at Paradise view the world. So I think a lot of the women at Paradise who don't really become characters outside of the fact that they are women at Paradise become sort of a Greek chorus for a lot of what else is going on in the in the show. Yeah, but I don't know that we really need that Greek chorus. That's probably true. Um, and you, would you say Holly Hunter wasn't compelling enough for you or Paradise was too out there from the, what the rest of the show was doing uh, for the plotline to work for you, would you cut it out uh, if you had your druthers? No, I, I don't think I would. I don't think I would go that far at all. I think it was just a. Um, I, I think it was maybe a show that could have benefited from maybe just a little bit of an extra episode to kind of work these things in a little bit more organically to try and uh, find a little bit more time to make the pieces fit together a little bit more well. Because like afterwards, like after a while, Paradise Store just became this place that people would just kind of like wander into when they needed medical attention or a place to sleep for a little while. Um, and while I think thought it was a very interesting setting, 
And I was absolutely enthralled with Holly Hunter's character, but, but ultimately left wanting. Um, I the, the entire concept of it, the entire storyline there just left me wanting more. But that also could have been intentional. I could see that actually being uh, the point of the storyline is to kind of like leave you wanting. But uh, I'm not certain about that. I'm not willing to come down on the side of that. Sure. Um, Sam, thoughts on this? Um, well, I think I think GJ is such an interesting character because I'm not sure how often the show is is um, wants us to think that what she says is absolute truth. I mean, sometimes she is, you know, she can pretty much be dead on, I think, in a lot of ways, especially when she was talking to Elizabeth Moss character, um, Robin, when she's having her issues and she says, you're going to, you know, you're going to fall to your knees and like, it's, it's going to get much worse before it gets any better. Um, I think paradise as a place, I think it was, I think it was interesting how it became, it became kind of a very key, um, meeting point for a lot of characters. I think characters had to kind of cross through, uh, there a lot. I think it was interesting how someone like Matt would, would show up there and he would like sit in at a meeting and, you know, he'd be obnoxious, he'd be himself, but he would be there. And I think, I was really interested to see all these different characters go through there and experience GJ, even if she wasn't um, super important to the narrative. I liked that different characters got to experience this character because she's so weird and she's such a trip. And I thought just as like part of the entertainment of the show, I thought that was valuable. And I thought maybe GJ's existence isn't so much for her own character, but it's to bring something else out of other characters. I think it's to make us realize things about Robin and it makes us realize things about Matt. I think, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is GJ's prime purpose was to be, was to be a foil for everyone else around her. You know, even when you look at her appearance, she's kind of like a blank slate. She has long gray hair. She dresses very plainly. She wears sneakers and she kind of sits in her chair and she kind of has this hushed voice. She's barely even there. So I feel like she's kind of this blank slate that she kind of bounces these ideas off off of these people who come through and see her and have all these problems. It's almost as if it's a way for the characters to, you know, instead of shouting at the world or shouting at the sky, asking God, why is this happening? They ask her and they ask her for answers and she'll give them, she'll give them kind of a, you know, a very big answer, like your body knows the answer or, something like that that's kind of vague. And it's ultimately up to these characters to take it for what it is and kind of see where ha- what happens going from there. So I think that might be part of the reason why GJ doesn't feel like a really established character. It's maybe because, like, you know, Jane Campion was more interested in, in having her be used in a different way, having her used not just as really a character on its own, but kind of, a, a you know, a way for other characters to kind of grow. And I feel like, I feel like that's how she was really used best. Yeah, I I agree. I think, and I think that's fine. I also think that that it's a little, it's a little bit of a cheat because GJ in that respect, isn't a character so much as, uh, you know, Campion sitting there and saying like, someone needs to realize this right now. She's she's more of a DSX machina than anything. If that's, if that's really the case. 
I mean, maybe. Which, again, like, I don't know if I have a problem with that necessarily because of the role Paradise has in the story and because of how well Hunter plays GJ, but I still think, like, if there had been a little bit more to the character, I would have been uh, much more satisfied with, with that particular respect. Um, we're running we're running longer than I'd like to on this segment right now, so why don't we move into a quick wrap-up of everyone's thoughts on Top of the Lake so we can jump to Movie Club. Uh, Sam, final thoughts? Um, it was great. I eagerly await when uh, the BBC announces who will play Robin next year. I hope it's Peter Capaldi. Excellent. Chris? Definitely worth your time. Check it out. It's, uh, it's, it's really solid. Yeah, I would say, uh, in closing, this is one of the best things I've seen on TV this year. Um, it's something that'll probably make my top 10 TV shows list when the year comes to an end. Uh, and it's seven hours long, so if you haven't seen it, go check it out. If you have seen it, spread the word on how great it is. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our segment on it. With that, why don't we move on and return to the Rubina Movie Club. This week we are discussing Undefeated. Sam, this was your pick, so I'll let you guide us through. Go ahead. Sure, I'll host this one. Um, I was really interested in picking this movie, one, because I love sports movies and the thing I the thing I love more than sports movies are good sports movies, and this is a, a documentary that I had heard about, obviously because it won the Best Documentary Oscar a few years ago, and it was something that kind of slipped by me. It's something I think I would normally seek out and definitely go see, but this one kind of went under the radar for me, and I was surprised none of us had seen it, um, you know, given I think we're all pretty good about seeing Oscar-y stuff. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just start by asking, I guess I'll start with you, Jordan, since I feel like I've started with Chris already. Um, what yeah, are some I'm of your thoughts like about Chris the movie? Yeah, I, I hate Chris, don't worry. <laughs> what are some of your thoughts about the movie? I know. Do you think, do you think its role as a Oscar-winning slash Oscar-nominated movie, do you think that's fair? Um, what are your, some of your general thoughts about the movie? Okay. Uh, generally, I would say... It's very good. Um, whether I think it should win an Oscar and whether I think it was obviously going to win the Oscar are different questions. I would say this is the type of movie where, wh had I seen it in the year, I would have said this is definitely going to win Best Documentary. Um, it's it's a very conventional documentary in that it's got a lot of talking heads. Um, it's a very winning story in terms of, you know, it's the sort of thing that you expect Academy voters to go like, I'm really glad I saw this. This was a great movie. Let's give it the Oscar. Um, do I think it was the best documentary of 2011? I'd have to look back at the documentaries released in 2011 and what I saw that year. Um, I thought it was very good. I enjoyed it, but I think it was, I think it was a better story than it was a movie, um, which is a problem I think a lot of documentaries went into, where it's like, I think a decent documentary filmmaker stumbled upon a pretty solid story, told it very well. Uh, and so my investment in, in the movie was real uh, because these are real people and because the story is told well enough that I got invested in them. But I don't know that I love it as a movie so much as I think, like, that's a cool story that I'm glad I know now. Um, Chris? Um, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, it really... Uh, it was a great primer for um, football season coming back. Uh, it, it got me 
just really back in the mindset of just like, oh, God, I'm so glad football is coming back in a great way. But more than that, I I, I thought that um, it was a really interesting situation to kind of immerse yourself in. It's like you don't really um, I, think about like some of the things that they were talking about in that show in the movie. Like I think that the line that really struck me a lot was when they were talking, describing the idea of how um, the, the school gets paid to basically just get the shit kicked out of them for other schools, homecoming games and just how detrimental that is to the kids just like who have been kicked down so much to begin with. to then just have to go through this year after year and to have this shot at finally like becoming something more about, like being taken seriously as a team. I, I, I thought it was a very compelling story. Um, I agree with you that maybe it wasn't told in the most compelling way, but I think the characters are enough to really get you over that and to really immerse you in this, the story of these people's lives, especially Bill Courtney, I think is an amazingly charismatic figure. Um, and pretty much every time he wants to just talk to the camera for a while, it's, it's worth watching. I think he's a very interesting guy and you can't help, but just kind of love him for what he's doing. Sam, what were your general thoughts on the movie? Um, I really enjoyed it also. I'm not sure. Again, I, I just checked the other nominees for who was nominated um, that year. The only other documentary that I even recognize is Pina. And I haven't seen that one. Um, supposedly that was very good. Um, for this though, I, I, I really enjoyed this movie again because I was so, so invested in the people. And while the film, it was very kind of verite, it was just handheld camera and, you know, the director wasn't, wasn't trying to do anything too artistically out there with the movie. It was just kind of, here are these people, here's them playing football, here's them practicing and here's them talking. It was very, very simple, um, in terms of presentation, but I think, I think the directors did an excellent job of piecing this movie together where we can kind of, you know, tell the story of these three or four people in a way that we, we can kind of service all of their stories in two hours and make us really, really care about these people. Cause you know, each one, each person's story is obviously much, much more complicated than something you can get in a, you know, two hour, hour and a half documentary. But I think by the end of the movie, we kind of have an idea of who these people are. And I think, the, the movie focuses on the coach, Bill Courtney, O.C. Brown, who's kind of the big time prospect offensive lineman. Um, Montreal Brown, Money Brown, who is like a really great student and has like good prospects in terms of college. And uh, Chavis Daniels, who is kind of like a troubled kid who clearly has, you know, serious anger issues. And he's trying to, you know, deal with that. And, you know, the, the really great, film uh, filmmaking here is that they were able to kind of service all of these stories, I think to different levels of, of effectiveness. I mean, certainly I, I think, you know, the coach coach and OC, I think got a lot of the movie. Um, um, but I, I, I found that it hit a lot of the marks in something you'd find in a, you know, a fiction sports movie. It kind of hit all these underdog notes that you, you want to see in a sports movie. that are kind of uplifting. But the ending, which I guess we'll get to in a little bit once we get into spoilers, you know, a lot of this is uplifting, but, you know, it's also real life in a lot of ways. And not everything is super neat and clean how these stories end like they do in a lot of sports movies. Um, 
And it's also, it's also a good reminder about, you know, how much sports mean to some people and how important they are in people's lives. You know, even though, you know, football is just a game ultimately, you know, at the end of the movie, you see OC Brown hug his coach and they're just like crying into each other's arms basically and telling each other how much they love each other. And it's like, this is like the most, one of the most important relationships like either of these people have had in their entire lives. So it, 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 you see like it goes so much beyond, um, you know, just playing football to do it for fun, which is, you know, why a lot of people do it. But, you know, some people do it because maybe they, they're good enough. Maybe they can go to college. Maybe they can get a free ride to college and go play. You know, maybe people do it because they're trying to prove something to themselves or to somebody else. Um, so I feel like while this movie, it didn't really deliver, I think in terms of artistic, you know, art, art, and a lot of artistic qualities, which I think is often kind of a forgotten part of documentaries when, you know, sometimes they can kind of be seen as kind of dry, you know, here it is, here's what happened, here's the story, that's it. Um, well, it didn't have a lot of that flair, like, I think, you know, you know, movies like a lot of Werner Herzog documentaries are kind of these beautiful, beautifully filmed movies. This is kind of gritty and handheld. I think for for what it was, I thought it was very, very good. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I mean... It didn't. It didn't blow me away in terms of, like I said, as a film, um, and even like I mean, I just felt like it was very conventional in terms of following a sports movie, sort of the sports movie cliched. Uh, you know, I think uh, Sam, I think it was you who was saying when we were talking about earlier that it sort of checked off a lot of the boxes uh, for the for the yeah. sports movie genre. Um, yeah, absolutely. And like, the, I don't think that's necessarily a problem because it does that very well. I think, um, but. It didn't. It didn't blow me away in that respect. That being said, uh, Chris, you said Bill Courtney is an incredibly compelling character, and I completely agree. Whenever he's on the screen, the movie is fantastic. I think. I think it did do a pretty good job of uh, not necessarily a good job of getting uh, a wide span of the team, which I think would have been hard to do well. But I yeah. think it did a very good job well, of so diving players, in. Yeah. Exactly. But I think it did a very good job of diving in with OC with money. Uh, maybe not enough with Chavis, but enough, uh, a little bit with Chavis, and enough that I think we got the basic arc of the season for him. Um, so I think I think it was smart to focus in the way that it did, and I think it did a good job of drying out uh, the character dynamics of these people. And I I'm glad that it went far enough to to do some unconventional things that I think we'll talk about. Uh, is there anything we want to talk about before we get into spoilers? I guess. No, I think we can get into spoilers. Yeah, sure. Sure. All right, okay. everybody. See you next week. Exactly. If, if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> Uh, skip ahead yeah. or we'll see you next week because uh, I'm going to spoil some things right now. Um, one of the things that I was glad the movie went far enough to do is to say Courtney was leaving at the end of the season to say like he'd done enough um, in his mind or maybe not done enough, but he started to realize that it was having an effect in his home life uh, on his relationship with his children. And I think the movie did a good job of saying like this is a guy who didn't have a father and who knows who can connect with his kids in some respect because he knows what they've gone through. But he also starts to realize I don't want to do the same thing to my children. Um, and I thought that was a very realistic, uh, I, I don't even want to say realistic. I think that's the wrong word because it's a documentary. I think that was a, a, a good thing for the documentary to point out and to bring forth is the struggle he was having and the fact that he made this decision, which I think is not necessarily the conventional sports movie ending to have the coach leave and say, like, I got to do other things with my life. Good luck. But I think it was a good thing for the movie to show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I 
I, I think that they really, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say it again. Like I, I Bill Courtney is just, he, he's an amazing, uh, he's, he's a very interesting guy. Um, I, I think he's a very compelling guy to watch. And I think his arc was definitely very interesting to watch. Just like how much he was just really giving to these kids, but how much he was feeling pull from other forces, like especially his own family life. So, yeah, I think I think you had it would have been more. Um, I, I think it did make for a better ending to go that far, because like, I could kind of see the idea being like, like, how much are we going to say? Like, where are we going to, like, stop the story saying that, like, I, I think it would have been dishonest a little bit to, like, leave the story of this, like, he's they're going to try again next year. I think you kind of have to say, like, he's he he left. He went to go do something else. But at the same time, I think that that's the better ending. I think that that's the a little bit more of a and I, it's it's hard to talk about this because it's a documentary. But I think that's the better place to end the story they were telling and showing that he had made his choice. And I, I think like um, it was very satisfying to see him do that, to to see him take that team as far as he did but then to pull back and refocus on his own family who you could kind of see throughout the movie that he was starting to be torn away from for how much time he was putting in with these kids who, but at the same time, it's like, how do you begrudge him that? Because these kids need so much. They've gone through so much things and really him pouring his life, his soul and his money into this program is one of the most positive forces going on in their lives and, and in the school. So it's at the same time, it's, you, you there those scenes where he's like he's focused on the tapes and he doesn't have time to like really connect with his kids they're trying but at the same time you think about these other kids who really he's kind of all they've got and it's it's and a very hard so yeah and it's it's a very hard um struggle and i think it the film portrayed that very well in his being torn between these two forces that really need him equally while we're while we're talking about his departure, I I wanted to say, and I think this is a stupid thing for me to say uh, and for me to want from this documentary, but um, because it is a very conventional documentary, it ends with a various throughout the credits. Um, this is what happened to this character. This is what happened to this character, and when it ends with uh, you know, Bill Courtney went and coached his his son's team. Their first game they faced uh, Manassas High School. The, the school he'd been coaching throughout the movie i wanted to know who won that game am i the only one was that dumb of me to watch <laughs> no i wanted to know too i really did i really I yeah expect- actually i didn't even think that i but i that makes a lot of sense it said like uh he faced them and i really expected the last uh piece of text in the movie to be like manassas won or like they won or you know even like bill beat them something like that just like it felt like the last beat on that story that that the movie for whatever reason didn't tell us and well, Manassas probably lost. I assume yeah, that that's what I think, yeah. I feel like if they won, you definitely say, like, yeah. his team that he coached up this much beat him. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think this, uh, the way they, the way that it looked to me is that the school he went to was probably, like, more of a football powerhouse compared yeah. to Manassas. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like reverse Friday Night Lights. I know, Jordan, you haven't seen it yet, but it's kind of backwards Friday Night Lights, the way they uh, play that story out. Um I don't. I think you know because because it's a documentary, it doesn't give you the super satisfying sports ending that I might have necessarily you know I might have wanted. I wanted them to win their first playoff game in their hundred year school history, but at the same time, I mean, that, 
cultural nature of sports. And I think ultimately the movie is about the people rather than the sport itself. So I think it was appropriate that, you know, the movie ended with um, the coach making this life decision and he's doing it for his kids. And it's a, it's about the people in his life. Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was a satisfying ending, but yeah. Uh, I, yeah now that you think of, now that you mentioned it, I did I actually, I didn't, when I watched it, I didn't think about who won, who lost that game, but I am curious. I'm sure we could figure it out. I did not take the effort to try to find out who won that game. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think we know enough. Like I, I think, as you said, if Manassas had won, they would have put that in there. I think yeah. definitely the other school won. Um, but whatever. Uh, OC gets to go play football for Southern Mississippi. Money gets to go to Southern Mississippi on a full scholarship and manage the team. Like we, I think we got to see enough uh, good things come out of this season, even if they didn't win. And even if uh, Courtney leaving does not necessarily affect the team in a good way. Um, any last thoughts on the movie? Um, no, I, I, I think it's, it's really, um, I, I, it's definitely worth watching. It it really will. I'm not sure if I would go as far as to call it a feel good movie, but it's, it's definitely, um, an inspirational movie, I think, but not in a cheesy way. So I, I'd say it's definitely worth watching. All righty, Sam, last thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I'd kind of agree with, uh, Chris. I thought it was a really good movie. Um, you know, obviously on streaming, easy to watch. And uh, I feel like, yeah, definitely inspirational, but not, yeah, it's not too cheesy. And I, I think, you know, the subjects keep it from getting too cheesy. Um, so yeah, and I if, would definitely if, recommend if, it. If you're not into sports, I mean, like Sam is, is really into sports. I'm just into football. Jordan, I, I don't know that. What is sports, sports? If you could just <laughs> yeah, uh, like so as you can see, like a varying range. We all very much enjoyed it. So if you're not the biggest sports person in the world, it's still it's still really worth your time. I think you'll still like it a lot. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Um, I'm not the biggest sports person in the world, and I really enjoyed it. So definitely definitely worth checking out. I'd say. Um, with that, we're gonna close down Movie Club with one last bit. Chris, uh, you're up, and it's your turn to announce what will be the next Ruby Name Movie Club selection. So go ahead. Upstream color. All right. No drum roll. No drum yeah. roll. We are we are so short on time. Thank you for continuing to listen. The movie's upstream color. Watch it. We are very short on time. The movie's going to be upstream color. It is streaming on Netflix Instant. We will talk about it in, you know, as per usual, three, four podcasts, once I can get everyone together to figure it out and watch the movie. So... We're going to talk about Upstream Color soon. For now, I'm going to quickly announce the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award uh, winner for Best Performance in the Week. I think I know uh, who won. Yeah, I think this is pretty clear. Uh, no surprises here. No drum roll necessary. Peter Capaldi uh, came out of nowhere. Not really. Uh, but you took <laughs> over one of the most prominent roles in television, especially in British television. Uh, and I think your profile is going to be raised, and I think you are up to the challenge. Please, I know it's a long flight. Come out to the renamed offices, grab your trophy, your small cash prize, hang out with us, and tell us literally any details that you know about what you'll be doing as a doctor, um, and we'll be excited to hear them. Uh, with that, I have been Jordan. This has been the Review Name Podcast. And to be clear, I am definitely a madman with a box.